Mr. President, I commit today to you and to the American people that if confirmed by the Senate, I will work to the utmost of my abilities with my colleagues at the Federal Reserve and alongside the Congress and the Administration to help provide a solid foundation for growth and prosperity in an environment of price stability. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Today is Wednesday, August 26th, and you just heard Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke at the top. He was speaking after President Obama announced he will nominate Bernanke to serve a second term. On the podcast today, we are going to answer the question that I've been hearing a lot lately. Is Asia saving the U.S.'s bacon and the rest of the world's in this time of economic uncertainty? But first, Hannah... I believe you have in your hands the Planet Money Indicator. I have it right here. It is 231. 231. That's how many pages of reports the Federal Reserve has been ordered to hand over to Bloomberg News reporters who sued the Fed for refusing to name the financial institutions who took part in 11 government emergency lending programs. Right. So the Fed had these 11 emergency lending programs, and they had argued that we can't disclose who is getting the money or how much money we're giving out in these programs because that would freak people out, would cause instability. There might be runs on the institutions. And the whole point of these programs is to add stability. So the Manhattan chief U.S. district judge Loretta Preska, she decided the case and she said, nah, Fed, you have not proven that these banks would be hurt. You are guessing. You're just speculating that this would be bad. She wrote, I have here a quote, conjecture without evidence of imminent harm simply fails to meet the board's burden of proof. Wow. Ouch. I'm gonna, I like that sentence. Conjecture without evidence of imminent harm. I'm going to use that in my personal life. The <laughs> Fed has five days to turn over documents to the reporters. So we'll keep an eye out for that. We'll be very excited to find out who these 11 institutions are. Kudos to Bloomberg, I think, right? Bloomberg News, yeah. So it's been a big week for the Fed, as you heard at the top there. On Tuesday, President Obama announced he would reappoint Bernanke as chairman of the Federal Reserve. And we had a feeling that was going to happen sometime soon, although there were some rumors that that maybe the president would go with a different Fed chairman. But there's absolutely no reason why it would happen this week that we could think of, the week that the president's on vacation. Bernanke's term is still – he still has many months before he has to reappoint. Uh, so that was the first topic in our monthly chat with Eurasia Group. Last month, we talked to the president of Eurasia Group, Ian Bremmer, about whether America's global influence was on the wane because of this whole financial crisis. This week, Ian Bremmer is on vacation, not too far from the president, in Nantucket. So we talked with the head of research at Eurasia Group, David Gordon. And we're going to get to a conversation about Asia. That's very interesting. But first, we asked David Gordon... Obviously, the reappointment of the Fed chairman is a big deal for the U.S., but there's a whole lot of people around the world who have been paying close attention. And Gordon told us that he thought this announcement had very much an international audience. I think that Bernanke's respected for what he's done in acting in a way to get us out of the crisis uh, and his proactivity. I actually think, though, that the president has reappointed him and reappointed him now 
more because of the credibility he has with his promise to 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 roll back these extraordinary measures. Uh, and the importance of that is that the U.S. is still and will be dependent on the flow of financial resources from the rest of the world. Right. We borrow, we don't borrow as much as we did two or three years right. ago, but we still borrow a lot exactly. from the rest of the world. And yeah. the question is, what kind of an interest rate are we going to have to pay? And and the the danger here is that if the rest of the world doesn't believe that we're going to put our economic and financial house in order successfully, uh, that we're we're going to be able to withdraw from these extraordinary mechanisms, they're going to demand a higher interest rate on what they give us. It's not that they're going to stop investing. So that's not that's not the danger here. But the danger is that there'll be upward pressure on interest rates and upward pressure on interest rates would create a real dilemma for the Fed in terms of monetary policy. Uh, and that's what the Fed wants to avoid. I think that's what the president wants to avoid. I think the interesting question here is why he did it yesterday. On vacation. On vacation. <laughs> and, you know... My own personal view here, and I don't have any particular evidence for this, but I don't think they planned it this way. But I think this had to do with these reports that are coming out from OMB on the the expanding size of the U.S. debt and the U.S. deficit. And I think that's where my hypothesis about Bernanke being reappointed less because of what he he's done so far and more from the credibility he has that we're going to unwind this in a way that addresses those debt and deficit challenges. So he's basically – so yesterday, Obama, we thought he was talking to us. He was really talking to about 12 guys around the world, and they probably are mostly guys in, in China, central, you know, the Central Bank of China, maybe Central yeah, Bank of – that's right. A bunch of guys here, too, but yeah, that that he was talking to a global market audience here. There's some guy in an office in in China at at what's it called safe the uh, right. state what is it I forget the the people who lend us all the money right. who buy all our bonds and and basically that guy's like nervous he he's, he's like, nervous he, he, he he's he, worried that the dollar is going to weaken that there's going to be inflation that the U S is going to inflate its way out of our debt and deficit right he and and which is what people have many governments have done in the past and so. Right. He's thinking, do I buy more euros? Do I, you know, I, I got all these billions and trillions of dollars. I got to keep rolling over. I got to keep buying, basically lending money to different yeah. governments. That's, um, and, and so we want him to say, okay, dollars are good. I, I trust yeah. the dollar. Yeah. We want him to say, I trust as long as Ben Bernanke's in charge, he has shown me the way that the U.S. is going to walk this back. So you might have been watching the news yesterday and thinking, oh, who cares, Fed chairman? But it actually was this fascinating global drama, it seems like, where the president was communicating to the Chinese central bank and other central banks around the world to keep buying dollars. As a result, interest rates will be lower. You'll probably pay less on your credit card. You can get a mortgage for less money. It's, uh, it, it has huge, huge ramifications. 
Yeah, and and so we wanted to actually talk about Asia also with David Gordon because this was this thing that we keep seeing. You know, the question that we had at the top of the podcast is Asia saving the bacon of the U.S. You know, and the rest of the world while we're in this time of economic uncertainty. And it's one of those things that I keep seeing all these headlines that sort of make sense to me. But I'm thinking really like I'm just going to read some. Asia Asia's recovery highlights China's ascendance. Led by China, Asia helps the world out of recession. China to surpass U.S. within a decade. All these headlines. It just I, I, I've just been thinking. You know, is that really true? Is Asia really going to lead the way and become enormous and huge and and more enormous than us? Yeah, I spent the weekend kind of with this friend of mine who's a big investor in China, and he was talking about how incredible this all is. That you know, if you just thought five, ten years ago that there might be a global recession and that China would be leading the world out of the recession, leading the world towards recovery, uh, that, that that's just remarkable. Um, it, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, like a year ago, two, you know, people were saying if the, if the U.S. consumer just stops shopping and the U.S. consumer has stopped shopping, then China is going to collapse. People were genuinely saying that the factories will stop producing our DVD players and T-shirts. People will lose their jobs. They'll go out on the street and riot. The Chinese communist government will fail. All of China will become a failed state. And that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing the exact opposite. Right. And we're actually wondering whether they're going to be our heroes to to lead us out of this, which is pretty crazy to think about. And, and I mean, one thing that I often think is interesting is I feel like that I have that perception in the U.S. that you hear about China as this huge, unstoppable economic might. And Adam, you said when you're there, it actually really doesn't feel like that. It, not at all. It's really interesting. Yeah. You talk, in the U.S., China is so powerful. In China, there is a real concern. It's it's like the whole regime, the whole government is is held together with, with uh, some scotch tape or something and that the whole thing could collapse. And you know, we in the U.S., this is the biggest market in the world. And yes, we are very dependent on borrowing money from China. But basically, if we were cut off from the rest of the world or the rest of the world was in recession, we could survive. We have a big market. There'd be an adjustment. It would be painful, but we'd be OK. We could become an island economy, as economists talk about. So so we've, we've come to think of China as totally dependent on us. I mean, they made a decision years ago that we are going to depend on exports to the U.S. And our trade gap with them has fallen, I believe, more than in half in the, in, since this recession started. And so um, how is it, we asked David Gordon, how is it that China has somehow managed this crisis time so well, so much better than anyone expected? He said it's all got to do with stimulus. What happened when the crisis hit is that China faced this immediate crash in export demand. They responded by this overwhelming stimulus package. And when the Chinese do stimulus, they don't do it the way that we do it here. If it's planned in the Congress and then it goes out to the states and then they... And it they, takes years and years to really yeah, have an I effect. Mean, they go and it, they, they announce a stimulus package and within weeks there are projects. There are urban projects. Uh, there, there, there's construction of roads, other infrastructure. There's finances in the banking system that are pushed out into into the business community, into consumers. It, so, it is continually amazing. The lesson China is teaching us is that being a communist dictatorship is a great way to run a capitalist economy. Well, they have, I mean, they have certain benefits, but with, with certain big costs. So despite all of this, economic growth in China is going to come down in 2009 from something around sort of 
10 or 11 percent per year last year to something closer to 7 percent this year. So this is not a small hit that they're taking. But, and, and by the way, I mean, obviously, we would kill to have 7 percent growth. No, it would be unbelievable. For, yeah, but for them, when they do the math, when they do and this 8 percent growth rate that China's always talking about, where that comes from is their calculation of how many jobs have to be created to sustain the natural increase in population plus the rural to urban migration. And it, it's, it's a mathematical formula. It's very mechanistic, and it leads to 8% growth. There, and I've heard that 6% would be considered a recession. 6% positive growth in China absolutely. would feel like the economy is slowing down. Exactly, because unemployment would be increasing substantially. That's exactly right. So they've achieved this, and it's no small achievement, but they've achieved it on the back of a set uh, of policies that they know they can't sustain. That is this huge fiscal stimulus. So they've achieved it. It's good. It's also having a positive impact for the world economy. So you're having elsewhere in Asia, there are also very positive growth stories in Japan, in Korea, Indonesia, Southeast Asia. So they're achieving it, and you've begun to see the pickup in exports even as far away as Europe. France and Germany reported last week that that their uh, second quarter economic results, export-driven, were better than suspected. So it's a good thing for the world economy that the Chinese responded effectively to the crisis. It is creating something of a growth momentum in in Asia. Is this going to lead to a global recovery? I think that's an overstatement. Uh, I think the fact of the matter is that that China is still way too small a part of the world economy. Even all of emerging Asia is too small a part of the world economy. And that the basis by which we got from where we were to where we are isn't sustainable. Both of those two things, I think, are sources of real concern. And you've actually begun to have this debate in China that, that is beginning to parallel the nascent debate here in the United States of when do we, when do we shift gears here? When do we... Uh, stop fiscal expansion? When do we stop the flow of money into the banking system? Because part of what's going on here is that when when China came into this crisis, I think they had their sort of hoped for outcome of what the after the crisis was going to look like was a return to the status quo ante. Where Americans are borrowing tons of money and then buying consumer yeah. goods made in China. Yeah, and I think they're increasingly realizing that that is not where we're going. That that I mean, and President Obama has been very clear that the U.S. wasn't going to go there. I think he's right. It, it it's at the end of the day, it's not good for the United States to be in that situation. It's not good for the world economy to be there. But I think the Chinese had had hoped. Uh, that maybe we were going going to go back to this. I think there's there is an increasing recognition in China that we aren't going back, but because of this of the the political weakness and the political fragility of the Chinese regime, they haven't used their stimulus program to create the basis for a new, more consumer driven economic model. 
And so the Chinese are at this very vulnerable point right now of, I think, recognizing that they're probably not going back to the old model, having the tools for the short term to manage that, fiscal tools, and they could do it for another 6 to 12 months as well, but not really having a plan or a strategy of how to get to a new model that is more domestically driven. So so they're doing they're doing better than us because they did a stimulus too but they did it better, faster, bigger and quicker. Part of it is they're doing better than we are uh largely because they they don't have a private banking system that right. collapse. So they didn't have any of the domestic financial collapse that we did, they did have a stock market uh, downturn, very very large one. But there, they don't have the kind of private financial system that we have in the United States or in Europe that basically froze up during this crisis. So that's one reason they're doing better. A second reason they're doing better is that they're a much poorer country. Uh, at a much lower level of economic development, and they had just developed a higher growth dynamic anyway, based both on this flow, uh, the, the, this demography uh, that, that enabled them to grow, but also their strategy of counting on the external markets. So these are some of the reasons they've done better, but they're these are also re- remember that that China China's economic growth rate looks great, except when you look at their level of savings and investment, and and when you look at that compared to growth, investment is very 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 inefficient in China, and what they've done in this downturn that is just throw money into the banking system to ensure social stability has reinforced the inefficiency of investment. So China's not a place that that we should be aspiring to copy here. But but when we see like headlines is Asia going to lead us out of the recession? In yeah. the dream scenario, dream being the best for us. Right. What what does that look like? How would yeah. that happen? I mean, I think what it would look like would be China beginning to import a lot more of U.S. goods and services, and I, and continuing to finance our banking and financial system, and I think there'll be a little bit of both of those, uh, but I don't think that there will be as much of both of those uh, as would be needed to to really get a recovery going in both Western Europe and the United States. Now, that being said, I. I, I don't want to suggest for a moment that that China achieving substantial rates of economic growth and enabling the rest of Asia to do so isn't a very good thing. It's a very good thing. Uh, and I think it's, in some ways, it's more, it, it's been quite important for putting a floor under the real economy, just like Ben Bernanke and other central bankers have put a financial floor under are, are troubled banks, etc. So this is a positive thing. Uh, but will it create enough dynamism by itself to lead to a global recovery? There, I'm really dubious. 
It is kind of astounding that we're even asking this question now. Is China going to save us from the recession? Yeah. Uh, no, it, it is. And it does reflect a structural shift in the world economy. There's no question that the world economy, the dynamics in the world economy are shifting to Asia. They're shifting to the developing economies. And re remember, we shouldn't just be talking about China here. India is also doing quite well. Indonesia is doing well. So there is this structural shift going on. There's no question about that. The structural shift, I believe, does have a benefit for the world economy. Uh, but it, it's one that we are still not in. It's we, we aren't yet seeing these economies being large enough and dynamic enough to to pull up the rest of the world economy from a deep recession. Now, Hannah, one thing I do like to remind people, and I like to remind myself when I get a little anxious, is this is a business cycle. This is going to end. There will be growth again. There will be prosperity and growing prosperity again. We're very confident about that. Uh, and the the problem right now is it's just hard to figure out where we are. Some days things feel like they're getting better and better, and other days it feels like everything's getting worse and worse. Right. And some days we hear from all of you out there that you're noticing signs that things are getting better, and some days it seems a little bit less positive. Laura Conaway has been uh, keeping in touch and keeping track of your experiences, and she heard from listener Amy Ennis that her neighborhood in Clover, South Carolina, there is a small positive sign. She and her husband bought their place back in 2007 at the height of the real estate bubble. And they were in this subdivision, which mostly stayed empty. There were very few homes, very few families, very lonely for the Ennises. Amy says the developer came through in the spring and seeded the red clay lots for grass. We, we have some pictures that she took on our blog at npr.org slash money. And she told Laura Conway, our own Laura Conway, that for the longest time, it just seemed like nothing would ever change. And then last month, I saw him building a house at the top of one of the cul-de-sacs. That must have been a surprise. It was, and I thought it was a fluke. And I thought, well, well, we'll see. Maybe he knew somebody who, you know, wanted a house. You know, it is a small town, and he knows a lot of folks around here. So I thought, it's probably just a fluke. But then he started on another one and another one. And uh, then today I saw him framing up yet a fourth house. Wow. So, yeah. I figure he's got some financing, I suppose. Can you tell if people are coming and looking at the houses or one of them one of them uh people just moved into the first one, which I thought was a fluke because obviously people moved into it, so I haven't seen anyone look at the other houses. Well, now I guess you'll get to sit there in your subdivision and watch and see what happens exactly, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that people come and buy them. You can see on our blog a picture that Amy Ennis took. She she took it right in front of one of the new homes that reads tax credit. <laughs> and we assume she's re referencing the Obama administration's program that gives first-time home buyers a tax break of 8000 bucks. But you got to buy before December of this year. So if you want to move to Clo Clover, South Carolina, this might be the time. All right. Amy says it reminds her of the Cash for Clunkers program, but for homes. Um, so you can see that on our blog, and you can send us your comments and questions to planetmoney at npr.org. We are going to sign off for today. We have uh, coming up, Adam, you have an interview with 
Barney Frank that we're going to try to get on as early as possible on Friday's podcast. Yeah, so tune in early on Friday. We're going to try and get that up as soon as possible because Barney Frank, I don't know if people know this, he is the scariest, funniest, <laughs> most awesome interview just because he is it's just always entertaining All right. and terrifying. All right, we will listen for that. For now, I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>